This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. everybody to the Future of Finance Motive Labs uh, podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest, Douglas Flint, former chairman of HSBC and uh, now into a number of things that we're going to be talking about. Hi, Doug. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to share a little bit of your background? Uh, then we can talk a bit about uh, what's going on and your uh, feedback and the big topics in financial technology and finance in general. Okay, so very simple, two careers. Um, started off uh, training as an accountant and ended up with a an 18-year career in what became KPMG, the last seven as partner, predominantly in financial services. I then uh, joined HSBC as finance director of the group in 1995. I held that role for 15 years and then was invited to become group chairman in 2010, a role I held until I retired in September 2017. Fantastic. So given HSBC and its roots, and given what we are doing here at Motive with Asia, I was very interested in reading about your new role. So you want to talk about that? Okay, so I got invited at the end of uh, 2017 to be the UK Chancellor's Special Envoy on China's Belt and Road. And that essentially had a, a double role. One was to coordinate all the professional services and other services predominantly that were interested in working with Chinese counterparts and Chinese contractors as they embarked on this extraordinary infrastructure build around the world. And the second aspect of the role was to project the interest of UK companies in being involved in the commercial and economic aspects of what is an incredible initiative to effectively share prosperity, build connections between countries and to help the lesser developed countries of the world create the infrastructure that will encourage economic growth within them. So great opportunity for UK professional services firms and contractors and indeed the broad spectrum of those that get involved in infrastructure to help this China-led initiative build capacity to support economic growth through infrastructure around the world. It's been tremendous. When I think about what will change as a result of this initiative, and sometimes I wonder, what do you think will be the impact on the Asian countries? Talk about Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, all that part where now all the trade needs to go through and now at least part of the trade will not go through anymore. Well, I think one of the major ambitions of the project is to ensure that all the countries within the region increase their economic size, um, because clearly it does two things. One, it creates capacity for those around them to trade into into those countries that have now created the economic growth that will support a middle class that will buy more goods. It, it also allows the more developed countries within the region to export their skills, services, construction capabilities and building infrastructure. And it creates a community of mutual interest, which is, I think, again, a contribution to shared prosperity through globalization, through creating a shared ambition to create an economic pie that is bigger than it would be if people weren't cooperating. So I think it's very positive. And what are some of the biggest wins that, that we've experienced so far as, uh, as the UK 
in China so far? Is it predominantly in financial services or is it in real estate, infrastructure? I think the big wins so far have been in professional services. It's been in legal services, it's been in project management, it's been in risk management through insurance and it's been in financing. Because I think one of the aspects that we believe the UK can contribute strongly to, and I think our Chinese counterparts agree, is that as the projects expand, more and more money is going to have to be crowded in, which means more and more attention given to all the attributes that will attract money from all the pockets of the world that exist. And therefore, that means broadening the professional services aspects around risk management, financing, transparency, accounting, insurance, and so on and so forth, so that the individual investors that have individual risk profiles are attracted to the piece of the, if you like, the risk mat that most appeals to them. Many of our listeners will think often as HSBC is predominantly a UK bank, despite the name and the, uh, the initials. How much time as a board did you spend thinking about the Hong Kong and, and China relationship and, and businesses? Oh, a huge amount of time. I mean, 75-80% of the business and certainly of the opportunity is in either business in Asia or in Asian businesses investing around the world or in European and and Western businesses more generally engaging in in Asia. So there was an Asian connection in almost everything we did in the corporate space, not so in the retail franchises, but in the corporate space. Virtually every business has as part of its growth objective to do more in Asia, to do more in emerging markets. And we were able to facilitate that because we had boots on the ground in most of those countries. And yeah, to continue on the China PRC theme and, and fintech. So the role that China has had and Chinese firms have had in the development of fintech, it's been absolutely terrific. So what do you think are the lessons that we can learn from that ecosystem, given your experience there? And what is the impact and how can the relationship between two countries develop through that? I think what's fascinating about the way China's financial system has developed is the absolutely extraordinary pace of growth of the platforms, Um, you know, WeChat, Tencent, you know, they are now the payment mechanism for a huge majority of the payments that go through retail activity in China. And I think that the way they've effectively embraced digital and the use of data has been an accelerated program that the West just looks at and is astonished by in many ways. I mean, when you see reported in the papers this week that Alipay and Financial has a bigger market cap than Goldman Sachs, and yet it's been less than 10 years in existence, it's an extraordinary achievement. But of course, an achievement based on having 600 million customers. HSBC, where I used to be, used to celebrate the fact I had 50 or so million customers, and that was quite a big bank, and the biggest American banks probably have somewhere around 100 million. So you're talking about a digital payments mechanism that has 600 million customers, and the data that that gives is an extraordinary advantage. Here in the UK, we've got a well-recognized regulatory environment. The SCA has done a fantastic job, as have the various government subsidiaries in supporting the ecosystem and helping it develop. China has had an interesting regulatory history. Most recently with fintech, it was very supportive initially of robo-advice and of peer-to-peer and has recently pulled back on those, those areas, imposing heavy restrictions 
burdens on them and in some cases squashing their business. Do you think there's anything either we can learn from their regulatory environment or vice versa that could be beneficial? I think there are two ends of the spectrum. I agree with you, the FCA has done a great job in promoting sandbox approach so that people get a chance to test things. But of course, in this country, we're testing on a few hundred thousand consumers at a time or or a million or so. In in China, the the tech firms have had the opportunity to effectively reach out to hundreds of millions of consumers who are very comfortable on doing things digitally. They missed out a whole stage in the evolution of how they look at payments and, and data. And of course, China has a different approach to data. People understand the fact that their data is centralized and there are different different arrangements around privacy, which are well understood and consumers acknowledge. We're still getting to grips, I think, in Europe, although GDPR has set the ground rules, but we're just getting used to the implications of of data and data sharing and data security and transfer across borders. China, of course, has an enormous number of participants in the digital payments economy, all within a single geography, and therefore there aren't the same issues that exist within Europe about data transferring across national boundaries. Change tax slightly away from the Asia-Pac angle. We've talked a lot about data and software and, and subsequently a number of different means and methods for innovation. You began your career 18 years, I think you said, at KPMG. There's a business, an industry built on people, time and materials. How do you see businesses like that changing to equip themselves for the next generation of technology-infused industries? It's 22 years since I've been in the accounting world, but I think it's changed dramatically. I mean, you're right that historically it was it was human intervention, it was human skills, it was ours worked. I mean, now the, the accounting firms are becoming increasingly technology businesses where effectively they're using artificial intelligence to interrogate quantums of data within client systems that could never be tested by human beings taking samples and extrapolating. So I think auditing is going to become much, much more technology-driven because the ability to interrogate dirty data within client systems and and begin to identify patterns of, of activity or get confidence over the way data is collected and controlled, I think is going to improve the auditing process out of out of all recognition to what it was 25, 30 years ago. It's already happening. And talking about data, when I think of uh, all this data and all the trust issues that have been stemming from misuse of data, what do you think technology and the financial services sector needs to do to continue gaining more and more trust from people in terms of usage of the data, in terms of usage of the data at the end of the day for the benefit of their clients and to offer better services, more tailor-made services, connected to what we were saying about China a few minutes ago. I think the trust agenda, which is hugely important, will be significantly enhanced through use of technology in a number of ways. First of all, by gathering more data, but simply by analyzing the data that financial institutions have got about their customers, they will be much better able to identify customer needs and customer risk preferences so that they should be much less likely to suggest a product to a customer that's not suitable to its need or is poorly designed for a risk preference. So they'll know more about their customers. Second aspect of that, they should be able to identify bad actors within the system more easily, again, through analytics of data and analytics of of what happens in accounts, and therefore, hopefully, the purge of bad actor customers through, through the financial system will be facilitated. Thirdly, 
the ability to understand customer needs better means that products can be more specifically designed for individual customers as opposed to large cohorts of customers. I mean, if you take the analogy with what's happening now in medicine, rather than giving everyone with a particular disease the same drug, they can look at the indicators of somebody's genome makeup and then decide this particular calibration of the drug or this particular inhibitor added to the drug will work better with this person as opposed to that person. So you get much more tailored product opportunity by combining the knowledge of the customer with the ability to tailor products in an efficient way because it's all done through technology as opposed to somebody having to design it. And then finally, there's the kind of proof of concept back to the regulatory world as to why did you give that product to that customer at that time in that design? You'd be able to say, you don't understand our technology, so how we do it. This is how the technology identified that this was an appropriate product for that customer, and therefore there should be less chances for institutions to just be unable to prove why they distributed products to certain cohorts of customers in a particular way. So it should protect from challenge in the way that they simply didn't have the data to demonstrate they thought about it in the past. Yeah, because the regulatory aspect was something that intrigued me a little bit because regulators were discussing recently don't like bundling up, don't like these type of approaches. So you think that by being able to prove the suitability on a continuous basis, based on the fact of the usage of the data, will be able to allay the concerns that regulators have on this. Yeah, and I mean, if you take the analogy, which is an interesting one, is already being done in a number of countries, including the UK. If you put a, you know, a device in a car and it, it logs what time of day you drive the car, what speed you do, whether you drive kind of erratically or not, and therefore prices your insurance based on your actual driving experience, as opposed to the fact you're 27 years old and you live in London, that's a heck of an advantage for someone who's a very responsible driver and it properly risk prices somebody who's a little bit reckless. So I think, you know, the ability to be able to say, that's why we gave this person that pricing and that's why we gave this person, because we have the evidence to support the risk pricing as opposed to it just felt that, you know, everyone in that category was the same or, or whatever. Thanks, Doug. Coming back to, to why you're here with us today, you, you recently assumed a, a position with Motive Partners on the Global Advisory Council uh, alongside a number of industry legends. What is it you're, you're looking to do? And how are you looking to spend your time over the next 12, 24 months, aside obviously from Motive Partners and the, uh, the special envoy role? I've got a number of, uh, a number of interests in the, in the charity world. I'm chairing a foundation for the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Just Finance Foundation, which is about financial education at primary school level and about helping the least advantaged to obtain financial services on, on better terms. I'm doing a bit in the medical charity world with uh, the Royal Marsden and uh, Cancer Research UK, which is fascinating, really seeing how technology is changing medicine along with all the other biotech and stuff. I'm not a scientist, but I find it fascinating seeing how those two are, are coming together. So that's kind of my main interest outside of the um, Chancellor's Envoy role and what I'm doing with Motive. I mean, at some point, I think I'll step back into the, the corporate world again. But uh, at the moment, I'm enjoying having a slightly more relaxed time. Glad to hear it. And then a final question that I always ask uh, people on the, on the podcast, probably because uh, I've got a, a fair distance to go in my career. Who have been some of your key role models through your career, people you've looked up to and have, have shaped the way that you've become such a, a well-known leader around the world? 
world? I there have been so many. I mean, I would say in my HSBC days, Willie Purvis, John Bond were incredibly inspirational. I had the privilege of being on the board of BP in the late Peter Sutherland, I thought was a, an absolutely titan of a role model in, in so many ways. There were senior partners in my days at KPMG that, that I admired hugely. So, I th- you know, I, I've learned so much from everybody I've interacted with because you learn good things and you learn things or you observe things and you say, I think I would do that differently. So it's invidious to pick people out, but the three I picked out were, were very special. Well, Doug, thank you very, very much. It's always a pleasure and incredibly fascinating talking to you and getting your ideas. So thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no ob- obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.